Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. I'm Ryan John. I'm Brendan Draper. And I'm Joe Santarpia. And today we're continuing where we left off just a little bit ago in the previous episode. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, which would be Building a Monitor Mix, please go back and listen to that before you jump into this one. Otherwise, uh, this might feel quite out of context. Building a Monitor Mix parts one and two, and this will be part three. That's true. That's true. This is part three. So to jump back in where we left off, in, in the case of all these different types of outputs, you know, wedges, IEM, side fills, and subs... We've got level coming out of the console and hitting various amps or hitting various transmitters. And we kind of need to optimize the way our console's working here. We don't want to be hitting a sub-amp so hot that we can only send to it at minus 40 on a send. Because if we're using something like sends on faders, we don't have um, kind of a, a, a dynamic range to work with. We don't have a good dynamic range to work with, yeah. And our fader's way at the bottom of the throw, and way at the bottom of the throw, it's less sensitive. So, in scenarios where your output from your console, let's say all of my outputs are actually outputting at, you know, I don't know, plus three or something like that. But when it hits a wedge amp, it's quiet. When it hits my IEM, it's, you know, near clipping my IEM. When it hits a side fill, it's blazingly loud. And when it hits a sub, maybe it's, super quiet as well those offsets in in volume can be problematic where you'd normally solve this is at the input stage of the next device right so the mm -hmm. amp itself you might you know turn up for the wedges and down for the side fills so that you're in a place where you're outputting from your console at a reasonable level and your rough stage volume is about the same. I mean, it's not real. Mm -hmm. This isn't going to translate directly, of course, but mm -hmm. you want to make sure you're in a spot where you're hitting everyone in kind of the optimal usage volume. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't have that option, at which point you have to take your output faders from your mixes and move them. I mean, I know we've talked a bunch about just setting them to Unity and leaving them there, but mm -hmm. there are scenarios where those can't really stay there anymore. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the ability to change this input sensitivity on other devices or... or the actual amplification level, sometimes you just have to take your faders and, and move your output levels up to turn up those wedges or to turn down those side fills just so that your rough level when you're sending at the same volume is about the same. And where it gets really important is, is if you're trying to cue all these different speaker types on your own wedge or on your own headphones or your own ears, you do need to hear it at roughly the volume that it's coming out on the other end. So right. it can be complicated when the various different amps are all putting out different levels across the various places in the stage. Brendan, you were about to say something? Oh, no, I, I was just agreeing. Yeah, like when if you have to do those adjustments and then you're bouncing through your solos, uh, soloing your, your mixes with ears on or with a speaker, it's going to be somewhat annoying because you're going to have massive or jumps in volume sometimes if you are having to make those adjustments, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can be a pain. And in general, it's not really recommended, but sometimes it's just necessary. Yeah, and also in the instance of, of, like, of like everything up or everything down, you know, to one or two dB. It's like, okay, you know, I'll just, I'll just hit this on the, on the master real quick, whatever. Right. Provided right. it's... Potentially, uh, you know, it's provided the situation is correct. Complex mix, you don't feel like moving twenty faders or something like that, and and you're sure that this is, you know, probably 
close to the end of of getting arriving at you know where the mix needs to be you know right 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 i mean i guess that's the important thing is that at a, at a certain point uh it becomes about being able to build these things quickly rather than uh anything else and if you're in a scenario where the show is happening and your singer kind of gives you that little round kind of hand motion and points up that means everything up at that point, I'm just going to take the master and bump it up a tiny bit. And yeah. maybe the next day, we'll go through and kind of fix some things in order to achieve what the singer needed at the, uh, you know, at the time, but couldn't really articulate. But that's what they needed right then. So, you know, the other thing that I kind of mentioned there was specifically sends on faders, right? With, with when you're doing these mixes and you've got sends super low on the fader... It's not a sensitive position for the fader. So, I mean, I don't know, Joe. Do we need, do we need to kind of explain what sends on faders is? Yeah, it couldn't hurt. You know, uh, sends on fader is basically, it's, it's, it's a, a function of most modern digital consoles um, that allows you to what's called, what's typically called flip the faders, meaning uh, we're changing now the functionality of what would normally be the channel fader on the console. Um, and you're making that variably controlling um, aux, send, aux sends instead. You know, um, you're, you're selecting which aux send the faders um, then become, more or less. So if you're looking at channel one and, you know, you have your channel fader where it is, you hit sends on fader, mix one, your channel fader for channel one is now the send fader for that. Um, you know, a yeah, lot of... I mean, that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, you know, um, consoles kind of call it different things sometimes, typically sends on fader. I feel like that's built for monitor engineers, really, you know, like that's kind of the main Pretty much, point yeah, yeah. Of that. So a monitor engineer can use the faders. Is, is, is there a typical workflow that someone would use it in? Yeah, there's a great one. And, you know, again, a lot of different consoles will call this different things, but there's usually some sort of um, Q, uh, AFL uh, follows aux send um function which basically makes it so that when you you know select or i'm sorry solo um an output bus it'll then additionally with with pressing that solo button it will flip the channel faders to that mix so so then it's one yeah. motion of just hitting you know soloing that bus and now your mix is up on your faders soloing the next bu so that, bus bus that's, that's something like sends on faders follows AFL exactly and it does exist the other way too it exists the other way where AFL follows the mix on some desks if you go to a specific mix and you already have like a mix queued it will then cue uh -huh. that mix specifically as well and I guess the important point here is that again you always want to be listening to the mix you're affecting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I feel like we've we've all seen enough scenarios where somebody asks for something and nobody listens to it and they just start pushing it up and they, that's it and it's like that's, it's a weird thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's like what are you doing? <laughs> also be aware of like sometimes there's a select button or there's different buttons to be able to listen to your your monitor mixes and sometimes you could select something and be working on it, but that might not change your sense on faders and, you know, be aware of not starting to make yeah. a whole bunch of changes to that mix when you think yeah. you're on it. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. why listening is really important while you're doing those sense on fader changes. 
yeah, you might be making all these changes and, and then this, and one band member's looking at you like you're crazy. And then all of a sudden another band member starts looking at you like you're crazy because his mix is getting all, you know, yeah. screwed up and you're like, no. But, listen, but I guess that's, that's another tenant. That's another tenant for why you should always be listening to the mix you're affecting. So if you're yeah. making a change and you're not hearing it in your own cue, then, then you know you're not doing it to the right mix. Yeah. Like, Good habit to get into. And I, I feel like that's just a thing we just need to, yeah, just, just grind it in there, turn it into a gnarly habit. It needs to be a thing that you just do every time, realistically, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, don't make assumptions about the mix, you know? Know what you're doing. So yeah, what about what about front of house? I mean, the moment the PA turns on, that's got to really affect what's happening on stage with all that sound bouncing around the room and coming back. Uh, and you know, sometimes subs are directly under the stage. So I mean, Brendan, what's 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 important to note there? I mean, it's just important to know that that things are going to change and make sure that the musicians know that it's going to change and that you know we're able to address like make changes to their monitor mix based on that. But I mean, it's easier to do that when you're listening to the PA, right? Like, I mean, we mentioned that before, but it's going to be different for if you're doing monitors or if you're doing in-ears, right? So, yeah, you know, yeah, with, with in-ears, you're more isolated. So those changes, not, not as drastic. I don't, I don't think like, you know, since you are more isolated, the, the thing you're going to feel mostly is, out of touch with is like the low end coming out of the subs because that's like radiating through your body. Right. Whereas your in-ears are going to be blocking out a lot of that, the high frequencies from the PA. Right. So yeah, you're, you you might find people asking for less low end (laughs) in their ears. And I mean, you can do that to a certain extent, but it's also, probably not going to get rid of it if that low end they're feeling is from the subs well i i I think maybe a good point to make there though is just to again you know hammer at home the idea that when you're building your monitor mixes front of house should be on yeah because it is going to heavily affect how you build the mix because like i'll be real i don't think a, a a musician has ever gone you know what there's a lot of low end coming from front of house i need less in my ears i don't think it's ever happened (laughs) <laughs> and it's yeah. not to say not to say it shouldn't happen it probably should but i i just don't think that that's what a musician thinks they don't go oh there's a bunch of low end coming from there i can take less in my ears and thus have a cleaner ear mix i think that's almost on the monitor engineer to kind of think about it i would say the opposite would happen yeah you'd think that they'd ask for more yeah i, I would think so you know so much of that you know that low end stuff you're, we're talking about and then also you know from the tops as well there's so much low and low mid coming off of the back of them um that the front of house guy is not experiencing the same way, you know, and, and they can really, you know, it can really mess stuff up. Right. Uh, my, my monitor guy yells at me all the time, you know, especially with like the vocal and stuff like that. Our guys are on wedges and he's like, man, you know, you're, you're killing me with the, it probably has nothing to do with audio too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> probably, he's probably just yelling at you cause you're a dick. Yeah. 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 That, that too. We, we gave each other quite, quite enough uh, guff, but Good. you know, yeah. The, the vocal stuff, you know, like lots of, lots of like crazy, you know, he's like, you're killing me. 160, 160's killing me. And it's like, dude, I, they can't hear it from out there. I'm, I'm experiencing it in a totally different way. You know, sometimes it's revealing, you know, sometimes it's like, Oh wow. Actually, you know, as you walk up closer to the stage, uh, you know, you're right. I should pull some of this out, but, you, you might not have that luxury and just be aware of everything going on. You know, you know, one thing I've found that monitor engineers can always find that you can't is um, 
the frequencies that get masked by low mid, right? So out front, mm. you've got all this big mix happening, and it sounds nice. And the moment you get behind the PA, you do notice that, oh, man, 160 is poking out like mad yeah. on the snare drum only. Every time there's a snare hit, it's like, boom. Yeah. And you kind of hear that behind the PA. But you don't hear it in front of it because there's so much other stuff happening around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those moments are where I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks, Monitor Guy. You know, you've sorted me out. You've cleaned yeah. me up. And now yeah. the mix is better as a result. Yeah. I, I, I think maybe a good point to make, though, is that the low end that comes onto the stage from the PA is always super muddled. It's not clear. No. You can never tell, oh, it's this bass player playing exactly this note. Oh, it's this thing happening. It's mm-hmm. always pretty messy. So, you know, what you just said, Joe, where, you know, maybe the musicians would even ask for more, they might because it actually gives it some clarity. Whereas mm-hmm. otherwise, it's just kind of like muddy low. Mm-hmm. One of the things that comes up a lot is is when the room is empty and we're doing our sound check, the band is, they all love their wedges, they love, love how it feels and how it sounds. But then the moment it's actual show, you know, the band comes back, they go, oh man, you, you changed everything. And even if you didn't change anything, it's just the, the room having filled up with people uh, just changes the way things are on stage. And it's, it's more than just physical people being in the room, right? Because bodies yeah they absorb sound is that but then also typically the temperature of the room is increased a bunch and there's a bunch more humidity in the room yeah. and all of those things t- totally affect how the sound is moving through the air and there's now maybe lights on stage too you know increasing the heat there too but there's also the emotional stuff there there's the pressure and all that stuff happening so mm-hmm. you know be, being as you guys have, have done so many gigs and venues I imagine that this comes up more with with an artist you don't know well. Whereas an artist you know real well, they trust you. They go, no, no, you're going to do what you do and you're going to take care of it. In the context of doing venue work and monitors, um, like like Brendan, what what have you found is the best way to you know communicate this to an artist and potentially alleviate it? What have you found? I mean, my first line of defense is just like being hyper vigilant, like for the first few songs in the set. I mean, I just try and keep my eyes glued to the, the stage with like a wide view to, to notice signals from anybody that, that a change needs to happen. I mean, you do that for the whole set, right? But especially in the first song or two, that's when, that's when things that are, that's when the weirdness is usually going to happen. You know, right, and and there's certainly something to be said for for musicians kind of falling into a comfort zone too after a couple songs too, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, do you have conversations with the musicians in advance too, and go, you know, this hand signal means this, this means that? Do you do you talk with them about that stuff? Uh, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it, it depends on the context. I mean, if it's a really simple band setup with like no tracks or anything like that, it's it's. And, you know, if it's a band I've never worked with before, um, mm-hmm. we might even like just fall into it. Like they'll just start signaling during the sound check, and I'll like know what they're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. If it's a singer and there's tracks and there's other elements that maybe are not normal, then I, I might have a conversation. Like, or if they if they have like effects in their in ears or something like that, effects on their voice. I'll I'll come up with a hand signal or you know or if if 
if they want to bring tracks up and down, like that's when I kind of go into hand, hand signal mode and like really expressly lay it out what we're going to do. Gotcha. Especially if they, if it, if it seems like during sound check that there needs to be a lot of changes, you know, I really want to nail those down so that like when the show happens, then, right. You know, it, we're going to be on the same page. Pointing is helpful, you know, like point at the bass guitar and point up if you need more or like point at the kick drum or, or right. the lead vocal mic or whatever, you know? That can help. So, what what about you then, Joe? Like in terms of in terms of the room filling up for the show and the show starting, is there something in particular you communicate or or I don't know uh, intentionally know to be ahead of when the gig's going to happen? Yeah, communication is is paramount, and explaining to your artist, you know, if it's a, if it's sounding crazy at soundcheck, and you know that it's the room, explaining to them that listen, this room is unforgiving, blah blah blah. Uh, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, just know that it's gonna tighten up. Uh, you know, once some people get in here, that kind of thing. Um, if you know that people are actually gonna show up, if you know that people are actually gonna show up, right? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's typically, typically, the bigger room and the more untreated the room, the the more problematic this becomes, and the bigger the difference there is between empty and full. Um, you know, yeah, if definitely. if you work for the venue. Uh, make it your business to learn what those properties are. Uh, pay very, you know, your, your first couple weeks, I mean, always really, but especially in your first couple times working there, pay very close attention to how it sounds empty, to how it sounds half full, and to how it sounds when it's sold Definitely. out. You know, if you're, if you're a touring engineer and you've never been to that room before, make it your business to try to learn that in the time you have. Um, listen to it at Soundcheck. Or ask the house engineer. Ask the house engineer, you know. Uh, you know, when I'm, yeah. when I, when I, when I'm on tour, I, uh, you know, we're, luckily we're, our guys are last or whatever, but you know, I'll go, I'll go out there for all the support bands, at least for a few minutes and have a listen and kind of compare, um, t- and try to, you know, even if the, the music's super different or whatever, just try to compare and, and see, you know, what the room is doing. You know, that's, that's, that's on you, you know? Yeah. No one wants to hear, no one wants to hear that the room's crappy. You know what I mean? Like. It doesn't help anyone. No, no. As you described before, though, you know, typically the the gist is that the room really does tighten up. Meaning, you know, when it's empty, all these sounds are bouncing around everywhere and it's reflecting back. And it's just, it's typically quite bright, sometimes a little bit harsh. Yeah. And the moment that room fills up with people, yeah, the, the bodies kind of absorb a lot of those reflections and potentially absorb some of that harshness because maybe the harshness comes from the reflections all kind of adding together. Yeah. But also, it can often feel like it is quieter on stage because of it, because all that extra stuff has been absorbed. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, as you just said, Joe, it's all about communication. You know, if you tell them what's going to change, then, you know, they can be ready for it. And in addition to that, as Brendan said, you know, if you're just vigilant in watching it for those first couple songs, you can kind of... You can be ahead can of it, it, you know? Yeah. Something else to... There's, there's also something to be... Oh, go ahead, Joe. I, I was just going to say, consider considering just crowd ambient volume, too, you know? Um, if you know it's going to be a sold-out show, explain, communicate that with your band and say, you know, maybe take a little bit more than what you initially think you want in your wedges because there's going to be however many thousands of people in here and just, just them talking, you know, that can be 85, 90 dB, 90 dB ambient depending on the show, you know? Especially if you're a support band because they're way more likely to talk through your set. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that sounds offensive, but it's true, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. 
and then and then if you're unfortunate and and you do kid pop tours like I used to, um, they just scream through your whole set and they scream at about <laughs> 117 a weighted. Uh, I've measured it many yeah. times. Yeah, what do you even do? You know, front of house is not as bad because at least they're pointed at the stage. <laughs> but being yeah. on stage during that, they're pointed right at you, man. It's, it's just white That's noise. Rough. It's nuts. It's like a jet engine. Yeah, I've done a lot of those. I don't want to do that stuff anymore, man. It hurts. It literally is physically painful. Physically painful. And I can only imagine what it's like to be sitting directly next to one of those kids as they're screaming. You're Oof. losing all your hearing. Oof, think of all but the maybe parents. you don't care because you're probably screaming as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's the icing on the cake right and the icing on the cake is the bit that i feel like most engineers forget to pre-prepare and when they get asked for it it's just like oh crap I, I uh yeah give me like 15 minutes to figure that out and that's effects right and the obvious one is like verbs on a vocal right yeah <laughs> so joe i mean where where are you at with this how do you how do you do this? How do you pre-prepare for it? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're the you're the asshole that I was just talking about. <laughs> maybe, right? Um, yeah, you're, you know, you're not an it's it's not something you see every day, but it and, and but it can be challenging. Um, you know, if you're if you're doing wedges, putting a reverb on a vocal can potentially become very problematic, depending on how much reverb um, they they want. Um, I I get it though. You know, there's like a vibe to it, and you know, maybe it will in the end draw a better performance out of someone so like it or not you got to deal with it at some point and you know so if you have a show file or whatever for monitors like have one ready to go and have it routed and you know make it so that it's pretty relatively quick to access something I, I definitely wanted to mention is that that's that's that can be some hectic routing yeah. You know, um, so be aware of all that and understand, you know, you've got an aux going to an effect and then returning to a channel, which needs to go out another aux, but not out the same aux because then it'll feed the reverb. Back. You know, like there's a lot to consider. Uh, be meticulous about your routing and just know what's going on. Not as much of a problem in ears, you know, because you're not dealing with that feedback. So, you know, especially if you're mixing ears, have a reverb on deck and your show file ready to go. Yeah, it's it's pretty much guaranteed to come up in ears, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, because that isolation gets rid of all the room sound that yeah. they heard before, you know. Yeah, now you got to supplement it. Yeah, yeah so that, I guess that brings me to the next question. You know, if you've got, let's say, three vocalists in a band, you know, lead vocal and two backup singers. Ah, uh, yeah. Do you use one verb or three? Well, you know, that's that's an interesting point, and 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 it goes back to the whole routing thing. You know, understand that if you fee if you're using one reverb return for three singers, and the, and you're sending that return to all three of them, they're hearing the verb from the other singers. Right. So that could be potentially a weird thing if they, you know, don't have that singer in their ear for whatever reason, but but then that reverb return is there. They're going to be hearing just the wet, you know, which which is a strange scenario. So, you know, you may need to do things like isolate and use different reverb units for each of those three singers so that they can each go to their own, uh, you know, what do you call that dedicated verb and then have their own dedicated return coming right. back into their ears. Yeah. Basically you just want to make sure that each singer has their own verb so that then if you give them verb, you're giving them only their verb as opposed to all the singers verbs or snare drum plus singers and all that stuff. It, it gets quite messy there. Exactly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think that, I think that that is, is kind of tied to what you have available to you. 
Yep. You know, if you only have, after you've got all your ears and wedge mixes, if you only have maybe two, three oxens left, then you probably don't want to give everyone their own verb. No. But if you have like another eight, yeah, cool. You can give each person their own reverb. And if you got like the, the, the DSP or the hardware or, or the rack units available in your desk or externally, then yeah, you can do it. It's, yeah. it's kind of based on what you have available to you, but it is kind of best practice to give each person their own verb if you can. Yeah. So I guess that being said, Brendan, yeah. do you start from scratch every time you're doing monitors for a new artist or are you using like kind of a pre-built file? Um, well, if it's like for a new artist that I'm going to go on tour with, I'm going to build a file that has like my basics all in it. So like labeling, some effects, some group routing, etc. And then I'm going to tweak it during the rehearsals um, or during the first show. I'm going to get it really like locked in. Oh, you fancy you got rehearsals. Yeah. <laughs> for the first time i mean I, I do rehearse with like local bands too but it's always you know we we never have like a great facility to rehearse in with like all the monitor wedges we need etc you know i'm just like right, basically right. there i'm listening and i'm like planning out my mix or whatever but um yeah so yeah uh, preferably i start with a show file that's pretty much all built out and if i'm doing house gigs i have a, a show file that i that has like all the basics labeled on channels already. So like kick through vocals and then, um, I make changes if I need to from there. And I have like effects returns that are ready to go. A couple reverbs, few delays if I need them house gigs, like where me and Joe work at the independent, like I almost never, almost never get asked for reverb in wedges or, or any kind of effects. So you know, but they're and there. Joe, you've also got kind of a start file you've 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 got for the venue. Yeah, as well. it's a start file just with basic stuff set up, parametrics on outputs. You know, a couple effects in the rack. You know that are routed just on deck. Um, I don't go as far as the label channels, but uh, yeah, that's about it. So, I mean, I, I, I guess the gist there though is that it is in everyone's best interest to, if you're using a file to make sure that there just are effect sends in it, you know, whether or not you're going to use them or not. Like, I guess we just don't want to stop the artist and say, Hey, give me five minutes so I can get this figured out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Just have it on deck, you know, it can't hurt. And if, if you need that ox for something else, you just pull it off and, you know, disable it or whatever. No problem. Right. And, 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 you know, if you've got the resources, you got the gear and you have the ability to do it, you might as well just have it there and ready. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that was a, a, a way more in-depth uh, part two than it probably should have been. So maybe this is part three now that we're closing up. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you know, subscribe, like, all those things. And uh, we appreciate you being here. We'll catch you on the next episode. 